Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Race Athlon, The Goal. And our author, G.R. Sneberger, joins us from near Santiago, Chile. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is an interesting dichotomy. You are in Chile. You have a very good English uh, ability to speak English. This book, uh, was it written in English originally? What was your goal in putting this book together? Well, certainly the book started as a study that we underwent with uh, my team. Uh, it took us three years to figure out what actually success, what's the meaning of success? Because a lot of books are written about this topic. So we wonder, okay, what about if we're able to find not a recipe, not a how-to guide, because that's everywhere. But what if we are able to find a strategy that allows people to find success on their own terms? Because, for instance, to some people, success can mean be a good parent or be rich or you name it. I mean, it depends on the people. So after the, this three-year study, we were able to find that despite the, the culture that people have, there are uh, three major races that we all run all together that impact our balance such as the personal race, the professional race, and the public race. Each one of them has specific uh, workouts, as we call them, uh, to achieve success after you run each one in a sequence. So you cannot start running your public race if you have not uh, completed your personal one. Your personal one is the foundation where you're able to win between codes uh, your, your, your value, your, your core values that allows you to keep on running so you're able to set your vision in life. Where are you headed to? I mean, I'm headed to be a parent, or maybe I want to be the best student in, in my university, for instance. After you are able to find your own foundation, you're able to move forward and start running your professional race. Your professional race means your value proposition, what makes you unique in the world. What, what are you offering to the many worlds you run into? For instance, okay, you are running in your world, your spiritual world. What are you offering there? Why are you different from the rest? Now you're, you're running in your world of work. You're working in a specific company. So how are you differentiating yourself uh, among the, all the other participants in the race? Because life as we define it, it's a race against time to achieve your own goals and dreams. A so GR, you're able to define what makes you unique. A GR, you're not you're, you're not an old uh, an old soul, or maybe you are an old soul, but by your photo, you're a fairly young individual. Where did you have this motivation? Uh, where did the idea of the race begin with you? Yeah, well, I, I've been lucky enough to travel the world many times. Uh, I, I'm working in, well, in my all different companies that I have, but I'm working also in a mining company, which has allowed me to travel to different places, where I have been able to see and share different experiences with different people. So I lived in China for a couple of months. I lived in Serbia, in Romania, uh, and in Latin America, too. So I was able to actually test all these workouts, all these uh, the trainings that we put we assemble in the book that we try to explain in simple terms so everyone can grasp or get the gist of uh, what we're trying to say. So even though I'm, I'm very young, uh, I've been able to, to share my, my amount of time with, uh, with different people more experienced than I am, so I've been able to, to share with my team because uh, I, I didn't do this by myself because we are around at 11 people that between psychologists, entrepreneurs, uh, journalists. So we all work together to assemble these strategies. I'm now the, the, the face of this uh, 
of the series of books because it, this is the first one. But uh, I've been able to, to try and, and get information from different and more experienced people. That's uh, why uh, I think that the strategy is proven. Yes. How, how long did it take you, GR, to get this assembled with your team and completed? 200 pages or so. Yeah, well, the study lasted two, uh, three years. Uh, and after that, uh, it took us around a year and a half to, to have everything together. So it was a very long process. We thought actually it was going to take us less time, but, well, uh, the first book uh, maybe took us longer because this is the first project that we tried to do massively. Uh, and hopefully for the second book of the series, because we're trying to, to get into more detail for the different races and different strategies, uh, it's going to take us uh, a few amount of time. You have also uh, described three different types of people in the world. You've uh, described people that I recognized immediately. It's not me, uh, routinaries, uh, rock stars, and runners. Explain how those different people approach life and approach success. Okay, yes, yeah, certainly. Well, after the study, we realized that even though there might be many different types of people, they all boil down to basically three kinds of people. The routinaries, well, are people that are very, very predictable. You can see them working at the same place for many, many years, having the same hobbies and so forth. So their life goes or evolves on a repetitive mode. There, you can you can easily detect, okay, these guys are going to be there on that position or with the same friends for the years to come. Mm-hmm. Now, if you compare that vision of life with the rock stars, we call them rock stars because they are the best in one particular field. They have invested a lot of their time in one, in one thing. For instance, uh, a tennis player. That person had to invest many hours from a very young age to be number one at that particular field. Or a the best professor you can find in school or in a university, that person also. So that's a rock star. Maybe one of his or her uh, uh, followers uh, is going to let you know about his achievement. Now, that person only is, is good on that specific field. But what happened with the many other ones? Because if you are investing your time to be the best tennis player in the world, maybe you are forsaking many others for instance, and be a good friend or be uh, connected to God, or anything. So now we realize that there are, there's a, a different uh, type of person. We call them runner. And why do we call them runner? Because they are able to keep balance in life. We do this analogy between uh, a runner, because in order to run physically, you also need a connection with your mental condition. Because, if, okay, let's suppose you just start running, okay? But you, yes. you are worried about your situation with your wife or with your family, you won't be able to run as good as you could. So a runner is a person who is able to find balance in the areas that they care about. For instance, okay, I want to be a good parent, but also want to be a good entrepreneur, and I want to be uh, the best journalist, uh, I don't know, you name the profession, I can be. So it's a person who's able to find the balance in the right proportion for, for him or for her. A mental preparedness is important, training, and then you say go the extra mile, how to become the ultimate runner. Runner is the goal of your book. Who is the target audience? Who do you think is going to benefit from reading your work? Yeah, we, we have realized that a lot of people who read the book are young people, people who are still in school or starting uh, certain uh, studies, uh, people between the range of 15 to 30-year-old, these are the people who are looking for different perspectives in, in their lives. Uh, they are, maybe they are trying to, to make a little turn from the, from the experience they have now. They are trying to open up their minds and look for different uh, situations, different uh, trends, you name it. But we have also realized that old people also, uh, senior people, for instance, that they would like to, to find certain clues, certain strategies that they could start implement, implementing from now on. They have also uh, told us that the book has been uh, useful because they didn't know that it was very easy to simplify life if you see it as a three tracks that you are able to run parallel. So now for them, uh, the situation gets uh, very, very simple. 
and they, they can start taking care of their personal race or the public race and start learning from the rock stars. And that is why we realized through the book, even though it's written for, for young people, also old people have a chance to, to get something out of it. You've approached things uh, this way with some positive advice, how to balance success the way runners do. And your question at the start of that chapter is, what are you running after in life? Is it money? Uh, you uh, approach that. Is it family? Or is it something else? Friends, perhaps? You have uh, outlined that. You've also included some diagrams and some thought-provoking ideas in your book. How would you introduce this book to someone in a couple of sentences and get them interested uh, to get their own copy, whether they're pursuing business or whether they're pursuing a music career, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, well, if you're looking for for a new perspective in life, if you're looking to to find happiness on your own terms, this book is meant for you because it, it doesn't tell you what to do. Since after all, you've been able to handle your life perfectly fine until now. So you don't need someone to tell you do do this or do that. No, no, no. This is a different approach that's going to open up your mind and help you take advantage of all these proven strategies uh, as you want to. So this is the goal of the book. It's a guide. It's not a secret or a recipe. No, no, no. You take advantage of it as you want. Uh, and we consider it's very useful because after this three-year study, we have uh, interviewed over a 1,000 people by now, and it's been proven successful in over 80% of the cases. So we think uh, it's, it's a good way to go uh, and to start running your life the best way you can. You've also included some uh, personal stories, not your own personal stories, but personal stories and, and reflections that uh, someone might be I involved in, like a family situation. These round out the idea and the concepts of your book, do they not? Yes, yeah, certainly. Actually, those were real stories uh, of different students we have had or people we have had meetings with. So the purpose of those uh, short stories are to show people that they are not alone in the world. Maybe they are able to relate in some way with those cases and they can take something positive out of it. We had a case uh, of a nurse who was diagnosed with a very uh, difficult breathing uh, disease disease while she was working in a hospital. So she, she thought that, well, now the world is over because I, I, I have to be in this village that I don't like at all, but either because I, I signed a contract, uh, this uh, public service uh, helped me out with the tuition of my studies. Uh, well, now I have to return many years, and now I have this disease, and I don't see a way out, so I'm stressed. Well, she told us this situation. We started working together on her professional race, and she, she realized that actually, even though everything looked very uh, blurry, very um, obscure, very dark for her at that particular time, she was able actually to find a positive way out because she realized that her personal race had a different vision for her life in that situation. So everything bo boiled down uh, to uh, a very good uh, ending for her because now she lives with, um, she, she got married, she was able to find a, an opportunity out of that hard time she had to face. Uh, so we think that those stories are very useful and are written in a very simple way. And uh, a lot of people are able to relate. That's the purpose of that. Fabulous. The title is Raceathlon. The goal, run your life the way you want, but make sure you're on the right track to boost your success. Some positive stories in here and some great advice. Is there a sequel coming up? Yeah, actually, we have planned 11 titles because as there are uh, different races, there are also different purposes for the people. For instance, if you want to be a good parent, there is a book for that. If you want to be uh, a good mother and be working and be taking care of your kids, there is also a book that our, one of our psychologists is working on that. If you want to run your wallet the best way possible, there is also a book for that. So we are planning on launching a book uh, one per year for the next 10 years. That's the main goal. And actually, the, the title, Race of Run, has a meaning. It's a mix between a race, because we are all, we are all running against time, and from the last part is because your life, the challenges you are facing, can be a marathon, a pentathlon, you name it. Depends on the series of tests you are facing now. 
or you think you are facing. So that is why it's a mix of words that we are trying to help you out, easy up your, your, your own track, how you can run that the best way possible. Uh, we're trying to give actually a, a, a positive uh, message here with this, uh, with the book. And every, every single book is practical. We don't want to stay on, the, uh, on ideas or uh, things that are very hard to implement in life. No, no, no. We, we, didn't, we did the opposite. That's a lot of the self-help industries trying to do now that they tell the stories, they give you good ideas, but maybe you cannot relate to them and try to implement them. Okay, we did uh, the completely the opposite to try and do the the worst way possible so people can take advantage of the message. Exceptional job on this one, Raisathlon, and our author, G.R. Sneeberger, who's joined us from Chile. And the last name, S-N-E-B-E-R-G-E-R, if you're doing a search online. Where else can they get a, a copy of your book, G.R.? Well, they can go to any website they want to that sells book. We are everywhere. Uh, and also on our website, which is www.raceathlon.com, there you can find a video that explains in in three three minutes the message, the main message of the book. You can see the next titles are planned and so forth. Congratulations! Thank you for joining me today. I know this is a, a wonderful work and should have some great impact on the reader. Recommend it uh, for my listeners to get a copy of Raceathlon. The goal. And again, the author, G.R. Sneberger, S-N-E-B-E-R-G-E-R. G.R., thank you for joining me today, and look forward to talking with you in the future. Certainly. Thank you for having me. Best of luck, sir. Yes. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Get ready to live la bella vita with Dawn Catherine on Toginet.com. Live la bella vita. If you're wanting to know all the beauty tricks of the trade and the latest fashion trends before everyone else, this is your show. If you admire celebrities' beauty and their fashion sense, this is your show. Do you love wine and want to know more about the process it takes to make wine from the vine to the bottle? This is your show. Live la bella vita. For more on the show and your host, check out our website, labellavitacosmetico.com. This is the kind of show you can sink your teeth into. If you enjoy traveling and food and family, all with an Italian flair, then you can live La Bella Vita with your host, Dawn Catherine. Wednesday nights at midnight, 11 p.m. Central, on toginet.com. Back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Ex Libris on air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Today we have a charming story of history and a personal encounter, personal life of uh, our author, Stella Henson Griggs Batson, who has written a memoir or a memory book titled Memories of Thompson Orphanage in Charlotte, North Carolina. Joining me from that area, is Miss Stella. Welcome to the program. Thank you. This is a uh, personal look back at your association with Thompson Orphanage. Share with my listeners how you became associated with it and what these stories entail. Well, when I was 11 years old, my father had died, and I was 11 years old, and I had two sisters. Uh, uh, one was uh, seven, and the other one was 10. And my mother, they weren't expecting her to live. And uh, so she, we always belonged to the Episcopal Church. So our priest and I guess our godmother helped mother get us into Thompson Orphanage. And um, in, anyway, that, that's where I, uh, before I went, one reason I wrote this book is because people have the wrong idea about an orphanage and even little children. And so, uh, I used to always have dreams, and uh, when somebody heard I was going to the orphanage, you wait till you get to that orphan home. They'll get those fancy ideas out of your head. Hmm. Said you wear blue in the summer and brown in the winter. So our mother was in the hospital, and uh, my sister-in-law took us, brought us to Charlotte. 
all right, it was raining that day, but we were waiting for people to, uh, for the uh, superintendent to come home. And when it did, all these children started coming home from the movies. And they were laughing and talking, and all had on beautiful clothes. So right then I knew that, uh, you know, there's this big misunderstanding. The person that made that comment to me really didn't know anything. There is a mis- there's, a, there's a misunderstanding about orphanages in general, at least in the past, that uh, they were a, a, a cold and unthinking, un, uh, not a very warm and in, engaging place. But you found out this was not the case with Thompson or- Orphanage. Well, the way I, well, children still had problems, but the main reason they, these children had problems, and I put this in my book, uh, is so many of them feel deserted. Yes. You know, they don't really understand. And back then, you didn't explain things to children. So I, I have emphasized in my book that an orphanage is built by people who love children. And when you put a child in an orphanage, it's because you love him and wants to try to help him to see the best that that person wants you to have a chance as, as, you know, to do things that he he would love or she would love to be able to do for a child. And I think with that understanding, when you first go, it would make a big difference in the way the children accepted the orphanage. How long has the Thompson Orphanage been in existence, or is it still... Well, operation. no, a couple of years ago, they changed the system. It was in existence for 125 years Amazing. in 2011. But it had already started changing up. Uh, it started putting children in foster homes and uh, things like that. And they, they were able to go out and have part-time jobs to help buy their own clothes. And stuck together are the ones of us that grew up together. And, um, we, I mean, we have friends. We, we're still attached to each other. And uh, without that orphanage, we would have been separated from our own families, and we wouldn't have all the friends to support us that we have now. How many children were involved in, in the orphanage when you and your sisters uh, became uh, attached to it? Usually, usually 89. 89 or somewhere, or, along there. somewhere under 100. Yes, we had, right. We had two cottages for boys and two for girls and an infirmary. And um, they were separated by age. And the thing, you know, we were not put with, like my sister was too young to come to my cottage. And uh, so that that part did, I mean, I think things like that did do some damage. Because, they, you know, away from their sisters or brothers, they felt isolated. You have, but, uh, you've included a lot of photos in your book. And you've also included some of the founding influences that helped shape your life, uh, Reverend William Harden Wheeler. Who was he, and, and uh, was oh, he Mr. someone Oh, Mr. Wheeler was such a wonderful man. He was the superintendent before uh, Mr. Wisnett, and uh, I think Mr. Wisnett was the first layman to ever be superintendent of the orphanage. But when Mr. Wheeler retired, he continued to come every Sunday, uh, every holiday, how he did all this, I don't know, but as long as he could, for around 40 years, probably. Incredible. And he, and I just think that he had such an influence on all of us that he deserved it being dedicated to him. He had a, a heart for children and for people. Oh, he, he was he was love himself, is what I call him. Uh-huh. I mean, he was such a kind, sweet, sweet man. And you have the dates from 1922 to 1940. That's when he was in charge or That's or when you leadership. went there. That's when you went there, and that's when you left. And were you you in the uh, orphanage situation or in that system prior to 1940? No, I went in 45. In 1945. And the Whistons had just come a few years before. And I always kind of felt like we were in there at the best of times. First thing they did was... Uh, Anyway, the first night I was there, you know, when we went into our cottages, all the girls were really thrilled and happy to see us. And um, uh, they, they told us to call the house mother, uh, Grandma. So uh, maybe I shouldn't tell this part, but yeah. I was trying to be nice. I said, if you give me some shoe polish, I'll polish my shoes. She says, I reckon you will. Nobody will do it around here for you. So I thought, okay, old lady, see if I'll call you Grandma. <laughs> so 
I would I was so sickly child and I went to I would write letters to mother but I wouldn't mail them because I didn't want to worry her. And my brother comes home from the army and he comes to see us and I make out like I really love it and I get I get my when he gets ready to leave I say, Ben, don't tell mother but I hate this place. Uh. First thing mother did, she uh but it says, Stella, I guess you'll always be unhappy like me. Uh, and it was like a light bulb went in my head. I said, no, I won't. If I straighten up, I have a chance at life. I quit presenting everybody and joining in and ended up absolutely loving it and everyone there. Spectacular. You also mentioned another key character that was part of your shaping of your attitude, and that was Lily May. Who was Lily May? Oh, Lily Oh, Lily May was a precious woman. She went there when she was 17, I think, as a cook for the feed. The Christmas changed uh, the way you ate. Different. They built a central dining room where we all ate. But prior to that, everybody ate in their cottages. So she went there as a cook, and she used to tell me about, um, you know, teaching the boys to dance and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But she continued to be there, and she was the maid, uh and this wasn't she did this wasn't put her in charge of so much to do you know things that need to be done with us and um we just loved her i mean she, uh, little maybe something else she's funny too you've included stuff but, per- she, but she she stayed there until she retired and they furnished a home for her really and grandma quick the same thing her pictures in the book with the little girl um she had no family and because she had been there so long, they uh, gave her a, a home at the infirmary. Amazing. So they did a lot of good other than just with the children. It, it sounds like a very uh, engaging and uh, inviting place for children who are in need at that point. Well, one of the boys in the book told us, you know, Stella, I never was happy there, says, but who's to say I would have been happy anywhere, you know, yeah. under the circumstances. Right. And uh, anyway, he emphasizes, that he, you know, that he, that's the only way to go, in his opinion, because he was able to, you know, get the training he needed to be able to go out in the world and, you know, compete with the best of people. And um, in fact, he became, a, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but he became a very wealthy man, and hmm. so was a bunch of the others. But they just, it just instilled confidence in uh the children, because you had think, uh, you were taught different things to do, and each person had a specific job, so you were not overworked. You know, like I might would have to clean my two bedrooms uh, before I went to school, and somebody else would have the bathrooms, and you know, a little job. You mm-hmm. always had to keep your things straight, but everybody had a job to do, and uh, it, it, they always had things planned for us, and it was to me, it was wonderful, and. Some of them, when they did leave, would come back, you know, all the time, bitching, and said they wish they hadn't left. Really? And one girl, she just died. She told me, she says, Stella, she said, I'd give a day of my life if I could go back to the orphanage just for one day like it used to be. Incredible. So that's just volume. It does. You have stories, personal stories, from people who uh, had gone through Thompson Orphanage. Uh, share one or two of those. What do you think was the most interesting story that you have shared in your book? Oh, that's kind of hard to say. Uh, the Hopkins boys, uh, in fact, uh, one of the stories he didn't let me, uh, the young son didn't let me put his story in there because he said he shared things with me. He hadn't shared the people. But uh, they're all, uh, since I know most of them, <laughs> You know, a lot of them, because I kept in touch with them all through mm-hmm. the years. I would encourage people I didn't even know. And it was really to promote the alumni. But after years and years, that they learned me through my cards. So when I called up people, you know, different ones to uh, see, I started out writing a newsletter, and I saw that wasn't working. But I started gathering so many stories that it just evolved around the book. But see, the two oldest people in my book are almost 100. Really? And the youngest person in my book is... Uh, in her early 50s. So it goes you know, back, I think, like four decades uh, to now. And in the last part of the book, there's three stories uh, about the home now. It's called Child and Children Services, I think. And um, it's one step below a hospital. 
and they have, I believe, uh, six cottages and 36 children, and uh, they have uh, a doctor and a nurse and all that on, on, on staff, and they have uh, caregivers that come in uh, every eight hours to take the place of the other one. But what I don't approve of, of that part, they do wonderful jobs with those children and really, really help them. That is the most loving place over there. And, but after they leave, they, or they, they uh, work with the children but when they and with the foster homes that's going to keep them or the family. But then if that foster home doesn't work, they don't get to go back to the orphanage. Oh. Or I call it the orphanage. To Thompson, they have put into the system. Oh. And I think our government has done a lot of harm um, just passing the kids off like that because they don't get training that they need. And um, then they end up, you know, just not knowing where they belong. Uh, Miss Stella, how long did it take to write this book and, and get in contact with all of the individuals? You've included their personal stories, which I think is a great way to approach this. Well, I, it really, I was by myself, kind of. Uh, my husband had died, and I was um, just sitting at the computer, and I'd call somebody up, and, and uh, some of them would give me this story, and some of them wouldn't. And so I would type a little bit. If we'd, I asked them all the very same question. And every one of the stories are different. Incredible. Um, and uh, I would ask them the very, you know, the same question, like, well, how did you feel, you know, if you were old enough, you know, when you came, what, you know, ask them that, like, how long did it take you to adjust, and up until today. And um, anyway, it just evolved. I didn't just sit down just to write a book. I just I didn't have anything to do, and I liked to write. So, uh and I love the people out there, so I just called them and got their story. It just sort of bobbed. Well, it's beautifully done. You have included the the date of the time they spent at Thompson Orphanage, and and from reading the stories and reading and seeing the photos that are in this, uh, it was a happy experience. Generally speaking, it was one that was positive oh, we, in their lives. We were. Yes. Uh, we were happy. Uh, there's some that, that uh, you some of them. Okay, my book is worth writing because of one story. This one boy that had given me a story, and it was so bitter that I uh, couldn't use it. Plus, he didn't like me changing up the wording. And uh, he wrote me, after my book came out, I thought he'd be one person that did not, would not like my story. And he says, thank you, Stella, for sticking to your beliefs. Mm. See, he went out there at three years old and his uh, little brother and his daddy was having to, but he had no other choice. And um, he grew up thinking he was rejected. And I think the part in there, that's where I put that you were put there because somebody loved you and cared about you mm-hmm. and wanted to see that you had a chance in life. I, he, he, he wrote and told me that nobody ever tried to explain anything to him and He's been was bitter all those years because he just felt like he was rejected. I said that's worth me writing the book to know that one person it made a difference. This is a wonderful reflection. The uh, title of the book again is Memories of Thompson Orphanage, Charlotte, North Carolina. Our author Stella Henson Griggs Batson. Uh, Miss Stella, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? All right, now as soon as I copy that and I got started to getting this thing uh, published, I got sick. My husband had a stroke and then I lived on antibiotics all summer. So um I I haven't been able to uh you know get out there and publicize it yet. But uh Amazon dot com uh, you can get it through them and also it's you know it, these bookstores like a uh, uh, Barnes and Noble they would have to order it for you. But uh, I'm just now getting on my feet again where I can, you know, like have this interview and then, uh, you know, start promoting my book. Because truthfully, I think I have a book with a message and it maybe hopefully enlightens a lot of people and then make some children realize that they are special if, if they were put out there. An important message. And again, yes, you can order from your local bookstore under Memories of Thompson Orphanage, 
Charlotte, North Carolina, and also under the author Stella Batson, B-A-T-S-O-N. And you should be able to get it. Uh, this is a this is a fascinating book. It is uh, one that is uh, kind of one of those nice reflections that gives you that warm all over feeling. So thank you for sharing your story and sharing the story of others. One thing, real quick, sure is uh, Amazon.com. I think uh, as disc- discounts it uh, like about two dollars. If you know uh, at the bookstore, you get full prices: a twenty nine ninety nine for the hard copy, and nineteen ninety nine for the uh, soft copy. And then four dollars for like Kindle or something like that. Fantastic! Great visiting with you. Best of luck on your health recovery, and we hope to hear from you in the future. Well, I thank you for calling me. My pleasure. Giving for, me this chance. For Ex Libris on air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Ex Libris on Air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book today is titled Lawman's Dilemma, a Reuben Braddock Western. And our author, Ray Bilderback, joins us from Washington State. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you, Jay. This is a, uh, a book that harkens back to some of the books I read as a young guy. Who was your audience when you were writing this, and how did it get to be written? All right. Um, my, my intent was to uh, drop back to um, Max Brand uh, and Zane Gray and, and, and that kind, Ernest Haycox, I think, and that kind of uh, a Western. Uh, some, of the, some of the things that are out now are, uh, pretend to be Westerns really aren't. They're an excuse for... Uh, Gratuitous sex and violence. All right, we don't want that. No, I. Yeah. I'm. I, and you were bo- you were born in the th- 1932, so you have a, an observation post or a view that is different from many of the new writers. Also, you have seen uh, the Western uh, growth, and you also have a family whose history goes back into the 1800s. Correct. That's right. I had a great grandfather who was mining at Rough and Ready when uh, during the gold rush, and uh, so we go back in the in California. We go back to the to the gold rush time, and uh, um, let me see. Uh, I don't know exactly how to phrase this. Uh, I was going to read from the back of this a little bit. I'd lo- I'd love to hear a little bit of that. Yes, sir. Okay. It, it says that Ray Bilderbach, creator of the Reuben Braddock novels, was born in 1932, raised in the Sierra Foothills, California. And I served in the U.S. Navy CB during the Korean War and taught many years in the West. And so I live, as you mentioned, I live in eastern Washington now. Uh, in the 1930s and 40s, where I lived, many of the farms and cattle operations were small, much like they were at the turn of the century. We still used horses and hand tools, canned and preserved what we grew or raised, lit our kerosene lanterns, stoked the wood stoves, many homes still without telephones and electricity. So I owe 
much to the brave assortment of aunts, uncles, and grandparents who took me in and taught me their ways, and I owe as much, owe much as well to those I worked with in hayfields, gardens, orchards, woodlots, and logging shows. In my writing, I draw from those times like water from a sweet well. I, I love that quotation that you gave. Uh, I, I draw from those times like water from a sweet well. Many of us can can uh, relate to the uh, the imagery of that. I personally, although I don't like to admit in person that I'm as old as I am, can relate to kerosene lamps and uh, lights that weren't there. They were uh, without electricity in some of the houses I lived in. Of course, I, I grew up in Canada in a rural setting. And so I can relate to some of those those uh, events that you have outlined in what you've just read. When you began to write this, how long ago, Ray, did you begin this story? You know, and that's hard to, to, to say, Jenny, because you, you, you form some ideas about what you want to do, and, and, uh, and, and I don't really know. They must go back uh, several years. And I, I, you know, I was writing another book uh, called uh, a, a Girl on the Tennessee Frontier, and it's set about uh, Lewis, Tyler Lewis, and Clark. Mm-hmm. And I just and I and I started writing this one at the same time. And foolishly, I thought that this one would be the easier of the two. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so I I decided to finish this one first. But now. Uh, friends and readers who who have read the first Reuben Braddock want the next one, and so I'm I'm preparing it, and it should I'm hope I'm aiming for my 83rd birthday in uh, June. Congratulations! And Reuben Braddock is your hero hero in your stories. He is. He's Marshall in there, but but it gets taken over by tough ladies, and there are several salty ladies in here. <laughs> you're uh, stepping they on... Come, they just come to the front. That's, uh, step, it sounds like you're, you're stepping into some dangerous territory, it sounds like. <laughs> well, Reuben, that's, that's, of course, what happens <laughs> to him. You've managed to pen 98 pages, which is not a long novel, and uh, on the front of your cover, it says it's large print edition. So my presumption from that, it's... Uh, Kind of a general audience book, uh, easy read, and uh, an exciting adventure. Is that the best way to describe it? Yes, and uh, I was going to read to you a little bit from a review at the back. Love Uh, to hear that. Kirkus Review said, Lawman's Dilemma is is told in a concise, straightforward style. That's a joy to read, not just for Western fans, for everyone who loves good writing. And I got a, from Clarion, I got a five-star, which three-and-a-half is good. And I got a five-star from Clarion. That's a Western history within a solid plot. Lawman is a wholesome novel written with realistic honesty. And then she thinks it uh, is, would be good for uh, extracurricular school reading. I think that... Uh, it would be good for reading groups. It's a, it has a three-part structure, and each one of those parts can stand alone, but they're thematically they're they're linked. They're linked by theme and by the by uh, Reuben Braddock, the, the hero. Because you were an instructor or teacher or uh, in education, did you? Do any research specifically to this time period, or was this just drawn from imagination and from your memory? Well, my wife is an um, anthropologist, and she will not allow anything that doesn't fit. You know know what I mean? Yes, sir. If I say that the Southern Pacific is is carrying uh, Reuben over the Sierras, then it was the Southern Pacific, not some other... (laughs) company, you know. And if I have in here, I want to read you an excerpt, if I might. I'd love to hear uh, it. And uh, there's a there's a bathtub in, in this little excerpt, and that bathtub uh, existed, and I'll read you that piece. I don't know if the interview is going.
That's exactly like I like to hear it. Okay. This is uh, in the second part, chapter 2. Uh, chapter, uh, second part's called Willa. Willa Justice poked up the fire in the wood stove. She was heating bath water. To hell with how hot the kitchen would become. She had hay hitch on just about every part of her body. The fire stirred to her satisfaction. She wheeled her bathtub close to the stove to make ladling water less a chore. The tub was her joy. Number 16405 in the Sears catalog. It was a full six feet in length and japanned blue inside with handles at each end for portability. It sported three stripes on the outside, one of them gilt, and had cost her three prime steers, but was worth every bit of it. She could stretch her whole length into it with just a bit to spare. She shook her head, remembering the years she'd spent trying to get clean in a wash tub, and there came a knocking at the kitchen door. The hired man had finished putting up the horses and wandered his pay. Good. The hay was finished, and now she could pay him off and get rid of him, him and his nosy eyes. He was a neighbor to the south and handy help with the heavy work, but he had aggravated her, and he was doing it again. Though he stood hat in hand in the doorway that tied her kitchen to the screen porch, and though he appeared to be waiting, the perfect picture of the humble servant, simply for his wages, his busy eyes took in the kettles and the water buckets heating on the stove, took in her fancy bathtub, and they were taking her in as well. He was trying to picture her easing into the tub. Perhaps he was comparing her with that stringy, worn-out little mouse he'd left back at his cabin. Well, I easily read his mind, every untidy, ungentlemanly corner of it. In her frostiest tone, she said, Here's your pay, Mr. Swinch. He held out his hands. I won't keep you but a moment more. Wash day, isn't it? And a storm brewing. You want to hurry home and give your wife a hand. And the kids... How many now? Six, isn't it? But first, his hands still outstretched. She let him stand that way and wait. She caught his eye then and held it. You're a good hay hand and tolerable good around the woodlot, Mr. Swinch, but I can't trust you. Caught your sneaking looks at me when we were haying, and just now you were at it again. I purely won't have it. If you ever get asked to work here again, you'll know to keep your eyes and your thoughts to yourself. That understood? He looked down at his shoes, nodded. She waited to be sure it sunk in, and then she added, Some men, Mr. Swinch, are of the opinion that widow ladies, especially young ones, ought to be accommodating, and I ain't one of them. She was annoyed and stayed that way. Wasn't it enough that egg, chaff, and dust worked its way under her clothes? Did she have to put up with a newsy-eyed switch trying to do the same? She supposed she wasn't dressed strictly modest, but to be so, she'd have to pile on the undergear, dress like a preacher's wife. You'd play hell trying to harvest hay burdened down like that. And so after paying him his wages, not trusting him, she waited under the big live oak by the back door and watched until he disappeared homeward. Beautifully written. Beautifully, yes, beautifully written. It sounds like he was a mean man, Mr. Swinch. Well, he was, yes, and he <laughs> did have. I just think that he was an ambitious man, but he didn't have anything to back it up with. You mentioned Sears. Uh, you mentioned the Sears uh, tub. I'm guessing that that was uh, taken from uh, historical accuracy of some type. If that's it. You look in the Sears catalog for 1890, and you'll find it. That's incredible. You'll find that, that very, very tub. Yeah. I, I love your writing. I think st- accuracy is important. Don't it, you abs- absolutely, I love your writing style. How would you introduce this book to someone and get them interested in getting their own personal copy of Lawman's Dilemma? Like I said on the back, I, I think it would be good for be good for groups. Why would they read this one and not others? Correct. Well, I think they. They would read this one and not others because they maybe they're tired of uh, some of the junk that's coming out. Uh, 
And maybe they want a, a kind of an old-fashioned Western. Now, that comments about the uh, Sears catalog being accurate. Were other aspects of your novel accurate, based in fact? Yes, yes, sir. If I put a if I put a live oak uh, beside the cabin, uh, that's the tree that would be there. And if I put a willow or some alders in a ravine, that's what would be there. And, you know, and I'm dealing in accuracy. Recently. I read a novel in which the woman was setting up a farmyard, and it was pitch black. And and they uh, and they and it was there were some cliffs looming over it. It was like four in the morning, mm-hmm. and she said we drove in there scattering chickens as we went, and there would be no self-respecting chicken in that yard at four in the morning <laughs> in pitch black. Absolutely, it just it just jumped me. That kind of an inaccuracy really is, really smells. That underscores the importance of not only how you write, but also the facts that if a producer saw this storyline and wanted to reproduce it, they're going to have a really an excellent roadmap to follow. Taking the cue from your from your writing style, I think this would be a wonderful book for anyone to add to their library. Again, it's a Reuben Braddock Western. Our author, Ray Bilderback, has joined me from Washington State to talk about his book, his first in a series, we think, Lawman's Dilemma. Ray, where do we get copies of your book? I keep copies around. I, th- I think you can buy it on uh, from Amazon. We're going to be uh, ambitiously putting this uh, back in the bookstores. It was, it was in bookstores. Locally, you can get it in several places, but they can usually get it by doing a search online. Their local bookstore often can yes. can also order it in if they look under or ask for Lawman's Dilemma, and yeah, the author Ray Bilderback. There's a website too that you'll find it on. Very good. And you can get it through eBay. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing your story, Ray. This is a fascinating book and uh, took me back into the days before electricity and uh, all of the other things that we take for granted today. Thank you for sharing your story and sharing that little insight into your writing style. I'll just sign off by saying for Ex Libris on Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.